And then we'll go ahead and take from 11, probably through chapter 18 or 19 in a sweeping way, back up and get some of the details. And then we'll finish up Revelation and then back up again and get some of the specific details within. Now, first, let's again briefly remind ourselves of uh, what we've covered so far and established in the book. Remember, we noted that uh, from a standpoint of scholarship, that the vast majority of scholars for some years now have dated uh, Revelation before 78. We've looked at the evidence for this. We've noted that the internal evidence has always uh, favored the book having been completed before the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. We noted the various evidences for this, such as the fact that at the time that this book is written, the Jews in Revelation are a persecuting force against the Christians and are referred to as the synagogue of Satan that claim to be Jews, but in reality they're not. And we noted that after 70 AD, this just simply was not the case. We also noted that in contrast in Revelation, a new Jerusalem in contrast with an old Jerusalem. You have an old Jerusalem that's going to be destroyed, and then you have a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. You can't have the new except in contrast with the old itself. We need to note also from Revelation the 11th chapter that at the time that this is written, uh, the holy city is still standing and yet is looking forward to its destruction and, and the culmination of the destruction that begins in chapter 4 and culminates in chapter 11 before it will start over again in chapter 12 uh, ends with this city that the writer says spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt but really it's a city where the Lord is crucified and we go to Revelation this ungodly group of people that is persecuting the people of God and is going to be dealt with is referred to in terms of Sodom and Egypt and Babylon. But again, each time it, it, it's being used to symbolize the Jews are this persecuting force against Christianity. We're going to reach this point, uh, the point in Revelation, where the persecuting force will actually uh, take and begin to use a beast against the people of God, and the beast will then turn on the persecuting force and, and destroy it. And we know that this is exactly what we find happening at this period of time. The Jews used the Romans against Christianity, and Rome actually began a persecution of Christians under Nero in about 64 AD. But then after persecuting the Christians, Rome will turn on Israel. And, and the war between Rome and Israel will culminate in the defeat of Israel and the destruction of the city, the downfall of the Jewish nation, and the falling of the temple itself. We've also noted that the period of time uh, that's, allotted, uh, that's allotted for the destruction of the city throughout the book, uh, whether it is uh, uh, referred to in days or in months, such as 40, 42 months, I believe it was at 1,260 days and 42 months and time, times, and half a time, that we noted that this actually corresponds with the war between Rome and Israel. And by the way, if you want the exact date on that war between Rome and Israel, in Josephus, we learned that it was declared in February of 67. February of 67 was the start, and in August, or July, I guess it was, July of uh, 70, it culminated. 
And so it was three years and six months, the war between Israel and Rome. And we noted also why it was that it took so long to destroy or defeat a city back then. They had walls around it, and they closed the gates of the city, and then a, the enemy would simply surround the city and besiege it. In fact, hold your place here just a minute. Flip back to Luke, the 21st chapter, Luke 21 and verse uh, 20. And note this statement, uh, verse 20. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee the mountain. But those who are in the city get out, and those in the country not into the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. And so Jerusalem would be surrounded by armies. God's people would flee and would deliver, be delivered. And we're going to come to uh, the 12th chapter of Revelation, where we have the woman representing the people of God who flees in order to escape the destruction that is coming upon this persecuting force. Now, another interesting thing that I want to point out tonight, I don't think we'll get to this chapter, but I brought it and would like to point it out to you tonight. Uh, remember in studying the evidences uh, for this book having been written before 70 AD, I noted that the oldest version of the New Testament is a Syriac version. It goes back to 150 AD. The oldest version we have in the New Testament is a Syriac version that goes back to 150 AD. And in the introduction to Revelation on this book, it puts it uh, as having been written in the time of Nero itself. Well, since that time, I went ahead and ordered a, a Bible. You know, here, this is the Holy Bible from the ancient Eastern text, okay? This contains that New Testament now, the Syriac version of the New Testament. And this is the ancient Eastern text, Old and New Testament, translated from the, the Aramaic language. And the translator of this is Lamsa, who is the author of the book Idioms of the Bible, explained that we studied on, on Sunday night. And uh, in this book, and I'll leave it up here, I'm going to run a copy of it to show on the overhead, but if you're interested in looking at it, turn over to Revelation 13, where he numbers the beast, the term 666, and you'll see that in this uh, Bible that's translated from the ancient Eastern manuscripts from the in the New Testament coming from the Syriac version, the oldest one we have, that he identifies that as Nero Caesar uh, in the translation itself. In fact, it's interesting to me that the Eastern Church, remember there was a break between the Western Church and the Eastern Church in history, but the Eastern Church has always put Revelation before 70 A.D., in fact, it's been the claim all through the years that the Bible, all of the New Testament, was written in Aramaic first and then translated into Greek by the Eastern Church. And later evidence, we're going to get into that a lot tonight, but evidence that has come forth in, in later years has given strong support to that claim that they have made down through the years. So this might be something that will turn out to be even bigger as more, as more evidence comes in. Now, turn over to the fifth chapter. Let's look at uh, some of the things that are happening now. We've established the seven churches that are being written to. Uh, they are a persecuted people. And every time we find this statement, that him that overcome And they were going to be the ones that would walk with the Lord and would live, live forever. And they're referred to as a persecuted 
fifth chapter, we have the statement here, I saw the light, the, the right, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll, written on, or writing on both sides, and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy? And then here we have John now, remember when you read this, John is seeing this. There is always what John sees, and then there is interpretation of it. Just like when we study Daniel. There was Nebuchadnezzar that in a dream saw this vision, and there was this image, and there was the head of gold, and then we come on down to the, the bronze, and then we move on down to the iron, first I should say the silver, the bronze, and then the iron, and then there was that small rock that was cut off and smoked the image, and that's what he saw. But then there was the interpretation of that. And so here, when you read about the dragon and the beast and the woman and the sun and the moon and all, that is what John sees. And that's one thing. Those are the poetic metaphors, the idioms that's being used to describe what's going to happen. That's what he sees. Then there will come the interpretation of this. And so these things are going to happen from within a realm of where God is in the process of vindicating his people. And he's going to pass judgment on the, on the persecuting force. But for a period of time, God's people are going to be severely persecuted. Now, come on down. We have the lamb identified as the one that can open and read and interpret this. Come on down to the, uh, oh, let's see, right on down to the eighth verse. When he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. And each one had a heart. And they were holding the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain with your blood. You purchased men from every tribe every, and every language and people and nation. You have made them into a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And notice a couple of lines here. Number one, this people have already been made into a kingdom and priest. You have made them. But then the will reign is a future type thing there. Remember that the Lord's church was established on Pentecost. God's kingdom had come to this earth. The Lord was king in heaven. But at this time, Christianity has not Yes. 
which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll. Now, here you have this vision that John is seeing. Angels of God who are playing on a harp. And as they're playing on a harp, they're singing a song. And then song and worship to God. Now come over here to chapter 14. Chapter 14 again and verse 2 and 3. And I heard a sound from the heaven, like the roar of rushing waters, like the peal of, uh, of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and elders. Okay, now come over to chapter 15, 2 and 3. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and over the number of his names. And they held harps given them by God. And they sang a new song. They sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, the song of the Lamb. Now, this is, I know, a vision that John is seeing. The reason I point this out is because through the years, uh, those of us that have not used instrument of worship, that have not used instruments of music in worship, have spoken of those that do, it's like they just don't respect the Bible. If they, they respect it and understood the Bible and, and used only the New Testament for their authority and everything like that, there's just no way that they would have the instrument. Now, what I'm saying now, uh, I'm not even interested in the discussion of the instrument of music right now, just because we're going over this, we're going to hit it and come back. But the point you can see from this that that's not entirely an accurate representation of these people. Uh, supposedly, according to the, the belief of those who uh, do not use the instrument, that the apostles had, had it made known to them uh, that there's no instruments of music in the New Testament. They have in the Old Testament, but they have another. But it's interesting, if you're in the position of John, that supposedly... God has told you that it's no longer okay to use instruments when you sing. But yet here you are having a vision. John is having a vision. And here's the Lamb of God who comes down to open the seal and of this book. And as the Lamb of God comes down to open the seal of the book, here are these angels. And three different times we have angels singing religious songs and playing a harp. Now, I know there's no literal harp in heaven, but the point is, you can see how that somebody can read through the Old Testament scriptures, and we all know what it says there. Read into the New Testament, they wouldn't have to say anything one way or the other. And then you read through Revelation, and you've got angels with hearts playing them and worshiping God in heaven. And I think you could read that and never come to any conclusion that there's anything wrong with that. In fact, this would seem to substantiate to your mind, because you've got if I was John, personally, to be honest with you, I'd have a problem with this if I had been taught that there was something wrong with it. Because if it's sinful here, and I think, well, what in the world are angels banging on a harp? Don't they know that you can't, make, that you can't worship God uh, using a harp or anything like that? And so it would seem to be a contradiction. So I'm saying that as we go through here, I want you to notice these things and just take them for what they're worth. And let them stand and speak for themselves. And those are three passages in the New Testament where John sees a vision. And in this vision, 
that there are the angels playing on a harp and singing a song. And again, the thing that we want to reach as we study this later on in the future is one thing, not to do something at, for what is believed as a safe course because of no historical record or something that we can find. But it becomes another matter to be dogmatic and to condemn people into sin when on the one hand there is not that command one way or the other and on the other hand you actually have an example where the Apostle John in a vision three different times is picturing angels playing on harps while they're singing songs in worship to God and that just simply has to be kept in mind and at least give people credit for respecting even if they differ with you for respecting God's word and having intelligence and reading it and, and just simply easily coming to another conclusion on, on that particular matter. But we'll come back to that later. This is something I mentioned so as we go through the year you'll have time to go through and read it and, and look it for yourself and, and make, make your own decisions on it. Okay, so the Lamb comes down. The Lamb comes down. He is going to be conqueror. He has himself a kingdom and they're going to reign on earth. Keep in mind this is really important. These persecuted people that are in any position except reigning in their he said, I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands. This is verse 11. 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne of the living creatures and elders. In a loud voice they sang, and here again, the worship of God. Worthy is the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And over and over now, there's this emphasis of this Lamb who is worthy to rule. Who was it that killed the lamb? Who was it that said he wasn't going to rule over them? The Jews. Rome didn't want to kill Jesus. Rome had no qualms with him. It was the Jews that killed him. And the Jews that said he's not going to reign. And now as we get ready for this big judgment scene on these people who are persecuting the people of God, who are the synagogue of Satan, who say they're Jews and really they're not, the Lamb comes to the foreground. The Jews have rejected him. And they have slain him. But now he's going to reign. And we're going to see a judgment situation. And vengeance is going to be taken on those people who, as we get into chapter 6, not only have killed the Lamb, but they have been killing his followers because of their testimony of him. Let's get into the sixth chapter. I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. And I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, there before me was a white horse, and its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and rode out his conqueror. So here we have the white horse, later on we'll come back and look at uh, some information regarding the, the symbolism here. Rode out as a conqueror, bent on conquest. Then there was a second seal. Okay, and then we come on down, and, and as a result, there's a red horse. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. And he was given a large sword. So we have a white horse. He's going out as a conqueror. Then the red horse goes out. Now this is what John is seeing. Keep in mind there's an interpretation of it, but we're seeing John actually saw the white horse in this vision. He saw the red horse. And there's some conquering going on. There's a judgment situation. Then we come on down and we see in verse 5 a black horse. And its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. 
And I heard what sounded like a voice for, of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, three quarts of barley for a day's wages. Do not damage the oil. What do we have depicted here? Scarcity, famine. The Lamb opened the fourth seal, and I heard the voice of the fourth, the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked. And therefore he was a pale horse, and his rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind. And they were given fire over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword and famine and plague by the wild beasts of the earth. He opened the fifth seal. Now notice this now. We said, as this judgment is taking place, the Lamb of God is in charge. And the Lamb of God is going to reign. And the Lamb of God is taking vengeance on those who were not going to let him reign and who slew him. They've also been slain as followers. And so notice this now, the fifth seal. He opened the fifth seal. And I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and of the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were be killed as they were had been completed. Okay, so now we see judgment is in process. And remember we said this thing's going to go on for three and a half years. And there's going to be famine, and there's going to be plagues, and there's going to be diseases. And then there's going to be killing. Uh, as Brother Sherwood pointed out the other day, Josephus records that the Jewish zealots within the city would actually take more lives, according to Josephus, than the Romans did. And then the Romans will come in and plunder and destroy and kill with the sword. And during this period of time, the land is going to take vengeance, and you have the people of God who have been killed because of testimony waiting for this judgment. Now, hold your place right there, and we're going to refer back to a verse that we're going to look at several times as we go through Revelation. Flip on back to Matthew 23. Matthew 23, and beginning with about verse 34. Okay, now look at this. Matthew 23, beginning with verse 34. Therefore, I am sending you prophets, wise men, and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. What's going to be the result? So that upon you will come all the righteous blood that's been shed on the earth, the blood of righteous Abel, the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come on this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who are sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers your chicks under her wings, which are not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, now let's look back over here. Here you've got the Lamb of God who was slain. But now he's come back to his people that he has made a kingdom of, and he wants them to reign. And there is this persecuting force that has rejected him and is persecuting his people. And so now we have this judgment situation that is getting prepared to deal with these persecuting individuals of the people.
we have the statement here in verse 9 that we have under the altar the souls of those that have been slain because of the word of God. And they're waiting. And they're saying, how long sought we Lord and holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. And so at this point in time, when Revelation is written, these people who were the factors in the slaying of the Son of God and who are still putting to death in his service, uh, they are still to be dealt with. But notice now, it's something that's going to shortly come about. It's something that we've already identified as dear and dear. What does he say in verse 11 here? He says they were told to wait a little longer. It's very near at hand. Okay, now he opens the sixth seal. And the sun turns like black like sackcloth made of goat hair. And the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars of sky fell to the earth as white figs dropped from a fig tree. The sky receded like a scroll, rolling up in every mountain and island that was removed from its place. The kings of the earth and the princes and the generals, the rich and the mighty and every slave and every tree, hid in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Now, let's go back Look first of all at Matthew 24. Matthew 24. And notice the situation here. We are dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem, the coming of the Son of Man. And look at verse 20, 27 and 28. Coming of the Son of Man. Then it says, Where their carcass, there the vultures will be gathered. Immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the skies, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, the sun, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds in the sky with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds, one end of heaven up to another. Then come on down. Notice what it says. Move on down, verse 34. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things happen. And so the same figurative language that the Lord used in talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and he said this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened, is the same language that we find over here in judgment on these people. Now, notice also where it says, They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne in the wrath of God. The great day of God's wrath is come. All right, now, hold your place, still in Revelation. Flip over to Luke, the 23rd chapter. This is right before the crucifixion of the Lord. Luke 23. And let's see, let's begin right about uh, 27. A large number of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. The time will come when you will say, Blessed are the barren women, the wounds that never bore, the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to the mountains, Fall on us. And to the hills cover us. For if men do these 
things from the tree screen, what will happen when it is dry? Jesus there, again, as they crucify him, by the way, this is another uh, Aramaic idiom, when the tree is green refers to good times, when the tree is dry referred to bad times. And so he's saying that men will do this kind of thing, when the Lord is with you, and when things are good for you, then what's going to happen when the tree is dry? When the Lord is taken away, when he's no longer with you, then what's going to happen? And notice again, look at this in Revelation, how you have the same thing. The caves, the mountains, the rocks, they will call to the mountains, the rocks, fall on us, highest from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who will be able to stand? Okay, and again, what we're noticing is John is using the same kind of language in Revelation that the Lord himself used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke regarding the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation as a result of their rejection of him and rejection of their kingdom. Now I'd like to back up and note how this is used in a very consistent way in the Old Testament. I'd like to turn first to Isaiah, the second chapter. Look at Isaiah, the second chapter. Wrath of God that's come, coming upon them. And then we could go on through 
Isaiah, and I won't turn, I'll turn to this one because we haven't looked at that yet, but you'll get to Isaiah, the 13th chapter, that when he speaks on the judgment on Babylon, he speaks of the sun and the moon and the stars and being cast from heaven and not given their light, and that's in Isaiah 13 and verse 10, and he's talking about the destruction of Babylon. All right, and the same thing, you come to Isaiah 34 and verses 1 through 5, and he talks about the destruction of Edom, and again, he talks in terms of the earth being shaken and uses the various things in heaven, and again, in a metaphoric way. And so I'm saying, this language that Jesus used first in the Gospels, using the various things in the heavens and the rocks falling on them in the cave, and hiding in the caves and things of this nature, is the same kind of language that's spoken of in the Old Testament by the prophets when they speak in judgment of God's people. And then in the Revelation, the writer here is using the same kind of terminology, the same kind of metaphors, the same kind of idioms, the same kind of language that's been used by the Lord and was used for the prophets. Now, this language that John is using, absolutely none of it is unique to John. All of this is language that was used for this kind of situation at that time, and all the people that John wrote to would, would be well into it. In other words, when he went out to the seven churches of Asia, they spoke the language, they were familiar with the customs, they were well studied in the Old Testament scriptures, the message of the Lord had been preached to them, the, 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 the what was to come on Jerusalem had already been given to them, the Lord's words had been given, and then this even this very type of language has already been used and is in use among them. And so I'm saying that when they read this, they simply didn't read it like maybe you and I read it the first time we read it. And we just looked at it and, and we've had it given to us in such a way that, you know, it's the end of the world and, and the sun and the moon and the stars and everything's going to fall and turn to blood and all kinds of weird things are going to literally happen. But in reality, I'm saying the people he went to, they never thought of it that way initially, and it wasn't until we come several centuries down the pike and people lose the understanding of the customs, the language, and the idioms of this people, these people, that we then began to have people reading this and taking it in a very, very literal way, that it was not intended. But what we can see is a judgment situation and the wrath of God being poured out on the people that are persecuting his people. And the final analysis, God's people are going to come out victorious. Okay, well, let's see if there's another good passage to... Uh, well, I'll go back to that next week. Uh, turn over to Hosea 10 and 7 and 8. I think that's a simple one. I've got it marked right here. Hosea, the 10th chapter. And let's see. Look at this, starting with verse 7. Hosea 10, starting with verse 7. Samaria and its king will float away like a twig on the surface of the water. The high places of wickedness will be destroyed. It is the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow up and cover their altars. Then notice now, they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Who is he talking about here? Samaria and God's judgment on them. What kind of terminology does he use? Same kind of terminology that we have over here in Revelation 6 and 15 through 17. In other words, that the thing literally, in fact, we're going to come to statements where these people here, it gets so bad that they actually beg to die. And they're going to use the same kind of language that has been used in similar situations in the Bible before. But nothing unique or different is what I'm saying 
his language that had been used by the Old Testament prophets, and used by the Lord. It was language that was in use this particular day. It was language that the people of that time and that custom who understood that language and were, were familiar with those kind of metaphors and idioms, they related to this just like you and I relate to terms like he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. They related to it in, in exactly the same way. Okay, now, come on down to the seventh chapter. And it says in verse 3, Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees. In other words, before you come to this final thrust on these people, until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Now, have we ran into this before? <laughs> we, we even found uh, in the Amplified Version that the translators there took it very literal over in uh, Ezekiel. And they, they put their little comment down there that somebody went around with meat blocks stamping everybody's head. But we ran into that in Ezekiel, didn't we? And Ezekiel, the ninth chapter of Ezekiel, the fourth verse, Ezekiel is in Babylonian captivity. And he is preaching to the people of God right before 586 B.C. when Babylon will completely wipe out Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And God is making it clear to Ezekiel that he's going to take care of the people of God. That the people of God, God's going to be concerned for and care for. And so it's depicted in that the people of God would be marked on their foreheads. They would receive the providential care of God. And so when, when the God brought his destruction on Jerusalem, God saw to it that he took care of that remnant. That he would take off into Babylon and then bring back and repopulate the city with. But there were those people that were faithful, God would providentially care. So what do we have here? Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. And so they're sealed. And so we have again, what about Jerusalem? We've got some godly people in Jerusalem, don't we? And God is going to providentially take care of his people. And how's he going to do it? Literally. Well, Jesus, whenever they saw the Roman army coming, what did Jesus tell them to do? Told them to get out. Well, when we get to the 12th chapter of Revelation, we're going to see that that's how the people of God are delivered. They get out of the city. They run. And that's exactly the way over there, God's people had the information about Jerusalem, and they believed it, and they were ready to surrender to the Babylonians. They weren't going out to fight and lose it because that God already had told them that he had given the city up to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how Jeremiah said, go out and surrender, that you're in a losing cause here. And so God would deliver by simply giving information, and those that what? Believe the information would act on it. God doesn't tamper with anybody's free choice. But God gives information, and those who believe in God will act on that information. And so those Jews that had become Christians and believe what Jesus said, they would act on that information, and they're going to flee the city. And it's depicted here by just simply the fact that a seal was put on the foreheads of the servants of God. In other words, God knows them. God's going to take care of his own. Okay, now, is there any questions or comments up to this point through the seventh chapter? Uh -huh, yes, he's equal nine four. Okay, I'm gonna get it real. Oh, that's the other one. I'll wait on here. Anybody else have any questions or comments? Okay, let's pause there at that seventh chapter and we'll proceed on. I thought we'd get further, but didn't.
Son, hopefully to get up to the 11th chapter next week. And again, read it over in advance so that you might have some comments or, or questions during the course of the study. Remember also something I asked you when we first began the study, and that is, if your Bible has uh, the uh, reference verses in the center column or out of the side, check those reference verses out. When you get to all this symbolic language, of the sun, the moon, the stars, and passages like the rocks falling on us and things of this nature. Check those passages out and see if they don't refer you right back to the Gospels and to other writings of the Apostles and the passages of the Old Testament, some of which will be like what we've already looked at and some other ones we're not looking at all. But see if they don't refer you to that and you can fix it in your mind how that this is language that God used to come back.